good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. What a joy it is to be together with the family of the Lord. Guys, we're doing something cool today. We're finishing out our current series, our first fall series, The Gospel Story. Finishing that out today. Uh, next week, we're starting our second fall series. Uh, we're going to... Is my microphone not turned on? series on the book of Ruth. We're going to spend four weeks uh, talking through that story. If you've never uh, studied through the book of Ruth, man, it is going to be an encouraging time. Such a gospel-rich, joyful story. We're going to be moving toward, and that'll take us all the way into Christmas time. There we go. That's right. Uh, but for today, for today, we're finishing out this, this, this series, the gospel story. And, and if you've been with us at all, if you're visiting today for the first time, that's fine. Uh, if you've been in this series with us at all, what we've been doing is walking through kind of the main themes of this story. What is the story of the Bible? And the whole idea comes back to this, guys. This is the formative story that Christians hold to, right? We believe the Word of God is the revealed Word of God, that it tells the story that makes sense of reality and our place within it, right? That this is what God has preserved for us to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about the world. And that there is, in spite of the fact that there are multiple books written by multiple authors and multiple cultures over hundreds of years, that this actually is one unified story that God has been telling from the beginning to the end of reality, right? So we talked so far about the idea that, that God is the creator, that, that he made all things, that he made them in his power and his authority, that sin is real, and that sin, hold on, the sound of this text messaging. I need to switch to the handheld microphone. <laughs> Is that better? Ooh. What? Hello? Okay. All right. This is going to mess with my flow all day, guys. It's going to mess with my flow all day. Okay. Back on track. The story we've talked about so far, God is the creator in his power and his authority. He made all things. He sustained all things. Sin is real, and it destroyed what God, the good that God made. It broke the perfect creation God made, but God is not content for sin to have the final say on his good creation, that God promised he would restore all things, that he would fix what sin has broken. We talked about the law of God as revealed to the prophet Moses, how it shows the holiness of God and displays his set-apartness from the brokenness that is sin. We talked about the person and the work of Jesus, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of God, right? That, that, that God promised, I will not let sin have the final say. I will fix what sin is broken. Jesus is the answer to that promise. Who he is, divinity in human form, God as a man, the work he accomplished, living a perfect life, dying an unjust death, raising from the dead by the power of the Spirit, ascending into heaven where he rules by the right hand of God from which he will return to judge and restore all things. That work, right? That's the fulfillment of the promise of God. We talked about uh, last week how you were not just saved from sin, that the, the gospel story doesn't just say, hey, Jesus is going to forgive you from your sin, but it actually saves you to something, that God draws you into his family, into his kingdom, 
That there is this relationship we live in with God now as, as restored beings that we are moving toward. And, and, and today, we're finishing out this story by talking about the last piece of the puzzle. Where does this whole thing point? And it essentially is this. It points to heaven. It points to forever, right? The whole, the whole idea here, guys, is that Jesus, listen, the story is about Jesus, right? He's the, the crowning achievement of the gospel story. But Jesus didn't do all that amazing work, live a perfect life, die an unjust death, raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, descend in heaven from which he'll return and judge and restore all things. He didn't do that so that you could get up and go to church on Sunday mornings, right? Not that this is bad. We love each other. What a blessing that our church family is. But this is not the end goal of Christianity. If it was, this would be kind of a terrible religion, right? No, 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 this whole thing is pointing to something greater than not just this, but greater than this life, greater than this reality. What it's pointing toward, beloved, is heaven. Our gospel story ends with heaven. It ends with forever, meaning you're not at the end of the story yet. Beloved, I've said this, this phrase a couple times, but it's, I think it's most important when we talk about this piece of the story. You were made for heaven. Heaven is God's design for you. Heaven is for you, beloved. It is the promise. Heaven is the promise. Heaven is the hope. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's what we live for. That's an, that's an intense sentence, but hold on to that. We're going to dig into that over the course of our time today. It's funny that we're talking about heaven because when I was a kid, so I grew up in church uh, in a Christian family, parents who love Jesus and raised us really well. But growing up in church, I actually dreaded the idea of heaven. Like just deep, like that sounds terrible. And then I go, mm, I, you sure you went to a good church? <laughs> There's two reasons for this. The first reason is this. So we had these, these tracks, these gospel tracks on like a little, a little like, like, I don't know, shelf in the back of the sanctuary. And there were little kind of mini comic books. And I would grab a handful of them and read them when I got bored in church on Sunday. And they always depicted Christ's return as, as this moment where God's going to line up everyone and take your entire life and project it onto a movie screen for everyone to watch, including all the shameful and embarrassing parts. And I just thought, that, that sounds horrific. I, I don't... I don't, I'm not excited for that moment, right? And then I have this key memory in one of, my, one of the church services in my church where I grew up where one of the pastors described heaven as a worship service that never ends and goes on forever. <laughs> and as a small child in church in the early 90s, the thought of singing our God is an awesome God for literal eternity was not appealing to me. <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's a fine song. I can rock out to it. But man, mm, forever? Because, you know, I, I enjoy things like television and uh, other, not standing in pews, right? Like, this was just, as a small child, this was my understanding of what, this is what I'd heard about heaven. And just to be totally honest, to be totally honest, my thought process as a child was, well, I suppose that is better than being tortured in fire, Right? Like that's, it wasn't something I necessarily looked forward to, but it did sound better than the alternative, right? And, and I, this is whatever, but praise be to God for a man who served in our children's ministry named Fred, who actually sat one Sunday evening and talked to us about heaven, and for the first time in my life, actually gave me the idea that heaven was something worth looking forward to. 
This is burned into my own faith story. It was this sweet old guy named Fred explaining to us that heaven was a place where you could play with your friends and Jesus and eat all the popcorn you wanted. And that was about as far as the description went. But I'll tell you guys, I'll tell you guys, it was a game changer for me. Because the idea he tapped into was the idea that heaven is something that actually, actually appeals to God's design in you. That actually appeals to something you would find joy and and fulfillment and freedom in. Which is the peace we are missing. Beloved, I think this, this really illustrates one of the flaws of the faith tradition of the modern Western evangelical church. For many of us, Unless we, unless we believe we are near the end of our life, we just don't consider heaven often. And when we do, most of us, I would go so far to say in my experience, don't find ourselves engaging that thought with eager anticipation. It's usually more like, yeah, I'm sure that'll be awesome. But I don't think about it enough to have any actual excitement toward that prospect. And guys, that's, That's missing something really important about our faith. Beloved, heaven is the promise. It's what this entire life is pointing toward. Beloved, heaven is our hope. It's what we're we're looking toward. What we're awaiting. what What we're inviting others into. And yet, how many of us, even in a space like this, live our lives with eager anticipation of the promised life to come? It's just not something that I feel like that gets a lot of mental real estate for most of us. Our text today is going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to go ahead and turn there. By the way, if you're in this space, you don't have a Bible with you this morning. We really believe in the importance of access to God's Word. Uh, We have house Bibles under some of the chairs. You're welcome to grab one. If you don't own a physical copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to snag one of those and take it home and, and take that as a gift from us. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today, and let me give us a little bit of setup before we actually read our text. So 1 Corinthians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he helped plant on his second missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts 18. Corinth was a really large city. It was a very influential city within the Roman Empire during the first century. It was also a deeply Hellenized city, meaning when the Romans took over the planet, basically, or or at least that section of the planet, uh, they allowed some of these older Greek cities to keep and maintain their Greek culture and a lot of the the Greek structures of life. Corinth is one of those cities, an incredibly wealthy, incredibly thoughtful, a pretty pretty just kind of progressive city within the Roman Empire during the first century. And, And the problem with that was it worked out in such a way that the church, the church in Corinth that Paul helped plant really quickly became one of the most unhealthy churches in the early church. Uh, Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians um, as a way of specifically addressing some of the massive unhealth that existed in the Corinthian church. This church was large, it was influential, but it was also really licentious and really divisive. Not long after their founding, when Paul has left, he's already writing letters back to just rebuke them for how terribly they're doing, which is pretty intense, right? You read, you read Paul sometimes, you read letters like Philippians, you read letters like 2 Timothy, and you're just like, man, Paul seems like a guy who could just make me a cup of coffee and give me a hug. You read 1 Corinthians and you're like, hmm, I don't want to meet this guy. He sounds, he sounds kind of mean, <laughs> Which really is like he's, he's very intense in these letters because he's, he's concerned for the health of this church. 
So if you read through 1 Corinthians in one sitting, you'll find essentially two divisions in this text. There's a ton of rebuke. Paul just calls out stuff. I've heard you guys are doing this. That's not what Christians do. Stop that right now. Like there's a lot of that in 1 Corinthians. But then he transitions and he gives them a lot of discipleship and instruction where you see him addressing specific questions and concerns the Corinthian church has sent to him through messengers, through letters, through whatever. He's offering kind of pastoral discipleship. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of these instructional sections within 1 Corinthians. He's speaking to them about some concern they have regarding the resurrection of Christ and what that means for the future of Christians, the the literal resurrection of us as followers of Christ. Now, it's interesting here because we don't actually know the specific question or concern the church at Corinth gave to Paul. All we have is his response, right? It's like hearing one end of a phone conversation. But there's a couple cultural pieces we can know that kind of help fill in some of the gaps here to set up this text. The first thing is this. Remember, Corinth is a deeply secular city, right? It is a progressive, large metropolis within first century Roman world. And in the whole idea of resurrection was downright silly to Roman culture and especially to the educated or to philosophical culture in that day. And there was a whole lot of philosophy that happened in Corinth. The Roman, the general Roman understanding of the afterlife didn't really entail anything that we would think of as like an afterlife. You pretty much just died and your soul got deposited in like a big old soul box and it just kind of sat there and was sad and dead forever. Like that was kind of the whole deal. They really built their theology around the idea of you've got this life, you better get what you can while you can. Like that was a lot of the general understanding of theology of life in Roman culture. And if you worked your way up to the more educated elites, the philosophers of the day, there was more of an idea of an afterlife. But even that was really fleshy, really earthy, really centered on life here and now. Because essentially, the only real afterlife thought that existed within the educated philosophical circles of Roman culture was the idea of, of reincarnation. That however, however virtuous, this is, this is followers of philosophers like Plato, however virtuous your life was here would determine how rich you were born next time, right? And which would, because there was this idea that your earthly wealth, your earthly comfort, your material would give the space for you to have enough free time to become a virtuous person. And that was kind of the cycle that was seen in some of these. I and mean, so this idea, this Christian, uniquely Christian idea that not only that Jesus rose from the dead, but that Christians will eventually rise from the dead. That just wasn't, even in the realm of the supernatural claims, that wasn't a category within Roman culture. And so it was silly. It was weird. Add into that that it was actually a really common practice in some of these more philosophically minded cities to take whatever religion you found, whatever folk or cultural religion manifested itself in the wide range that was the Roman Empire and just convert it into a functional philosophy. There was this idea that it was, it was, almost, it was almost like a hobby, almost like something that was looked upon as like, wow, look how smart and thoughtful those people are. That they could find a religion, have no real concern about the truth claims of that religion, and instead go, can we use this as a structure to build a disciplined, virtuous life and just kind of live it as a functional philosophy? That was something that was just kind of novel in this day. 
So you put these two things together, and we don't know the specific question that Corinth asked of Paul about resurrection, but it makes sense that the church in Corinth would be struggling with this Christian claim. Because when you get right down to it, there's this really interesting idea, right? So, so Jesus' physical, historical resurrection, like his, his resurrection of his body is a historical fact, this, this is a necessary claim for Christianity to be Christianity. Now, that's, that's an intense sentence, right? But hold on to that with me for a moment. That's, that's a big sentence that sounded just as silly then as it sounds to most people outside the church now, right? So you add in just what this culture is going through, what, what kind of the ideas were. It makes a lot of sense that the people of Corinth would really just kind of question this idea. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's response to whatever that specific question was, right? We, we don't know what it was, but we kind of know generally where it's going. He actually goes so far in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, not the part we're reading, in the beginning of it, he just lays it out and says, look, you can't have Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus as a literal, historical, physical fact is the absolute linchpin of Christianity, according to Paul. It's the primary, unique claim of Christianity, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that that means all sorts of practical and important things for us in this world. And then he's going to kind of walk through our text, and he's going to walk through the implications of that. But, but I wanted to give that setup, right? Here's this letter to this church that's really struggling. They have this question. Paul's answering it. And he starts by just leaning into this idea. Look, look, you cannot reject this idea. If you reject this idea, you have walked away from what is Christianity. You may be doing something else, but it's not Christianity, right? So let's read with me. Let's start in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. We read this. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death itself, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, I ask today as we take a few minutes to walk through this text, Lord, we just want you to be our discipler. And we pray that you would give us just clarity of heart, clarity of mind, clarity of soul as we consider your promise of what is to come. Lord, for those of us who are stuck in the weeds of the here and the now, the details and struggles and hurts and joys of this life just seem so big that they feel all-encompassing. They feel like everything, Lord. Pray that you would help us to slow down and step back, have a, have a larger perspective on this life that you've given us. God, give us a cosmic perspective on the souls, the image of God that you've granted us, Lord. Help us today before we leave this space to so just consider, just consider the forever you've built us for. 
Lord, encourage us, teach us, challenge us. Let us leave this space having heard from you what our hearts actually need. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so there's a good amount in this text. I'm going to walk through, just kind of back through the text and point out a couple things that I think we need to engage. You can switch back to the other mic now. You've got to stop texting me while I'm preaching. (laughs) I mean, can I? Does it work? Well, I don't hear it. Hello? There we go. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Mm. It's a little loud. Verse 20. Our text starts, and this was the whole setup, right? The the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. But our text starts with this blunt and important assertion. Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead. The literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a historical fact, three days after his brutal death, is necessary for Christianity to have any meaning. For many of us in this room, if you've grown up in church, that feels like a duh kind of statement. But here's the thing, guys. That's a massive statement. We're saying that a guy who lived on the other side of the planet thousands of years ago died and then stopped being dead. Nothing in the experience of our life would affirm that that seems within the realm of possibility. Things and people die often. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to guess very few of us have had a three days later moment of going, dang, good to see you. Thought you were dead. Nah, I'm not doing that anymore. Oh, okay, cool. Like, that's not how we experience life. And so to make this claim, this is a, this is a really big claim. This was and still is a unique idea. And by the way, if you mess with this as a historical assertion of Christianity, you lose Christianity. It's not what it is anymore. One of the biggest challenges to our faith and our time and our culture is this idea of a sort of Christless Christianity. Not all that different from the Corinthian philosophers trying to turn Christianity and other things into a pretty and functional philosophy. In a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's really like Western culture is built on this idea. If you step back and read the Enlightenment philosophers, guys like Locke or things like that, they basically pushed this idea that for a just society, you needed it to be Christian, but not really focus on Christ because they wanted Christian ethics within a society. They didn't want the supernatural claims of Christianity. They wanted ideas like individual human rights and individual human dignity, but they didn't want to have to deal with the supernatural historical claims. But the reality is, guys, you don't get the ethics of individual human rights and individual human dignity without biblical theology. Those things are not self-evident from a purely naturalistic point of view. From a purely naturalistic point of view, humans are just the animals who got smart enough to conquer everyone else. You need the Bible to talk about things like the Imago Dei, the image of God stamped within humanity to give each person precious value, precious dignity that's worth codifying in law and ethics. You can't have a Christless Christianity. It just doesn't work. But we're going to come back to that idea today, so, so hold on to that. Paul says this perfectly in the couple verses leading right up to our text. In starting in verse 13, it says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ was raised. 
If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, who he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've simply perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Beloved, without Jesus, this whole thing falls apart. Christianity does not work as a simple, personal philosophy. I have this good friend named Andy, uh, who's a former Christian who identifies as an agnostic or an atheist. He's walked away from his faith. And him and I have gotten into the weeds of discussing this whole idea several times. One of the things he said to me that's, that's actually really helpful, it's really challenging for me, if, if you've spent any time reading or nerding out on like Christian apologetics, sometimes you'll, you'll come to this idea of Pascal's wager, which is this idea of saying if, if Christianity isn't true, but I live my life following it, then I die, and it's like, well, I didn't really lose anything. But if it turns out to be true and I've rejected it, then oh, that's bad news when I die, right? Andy challenges this idea. And actually, I think really, really intelligently says that that whole idea is bunk. Because it comes down to this. If Christianity isn't true, but you live your life following it, passionately, concretely, with actual conviction, then you've taken the only life you have, the only 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years you get ever, and you have wasted them on others. That's an intense way to say it, right? But if, 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 if naturalism is all there is, or even not even that, if Christianity is just wrong, if someone else got it right, and you lived your entire life the way Christ told you to, seeking to be a slave to all, seeking to be a servant to all, saying that I won't seek to be first, I won't seek my own pleasure, I won't seek my own good, I will seek the benefit and service of others because eternity is what matters to me. If you live your life like that and then you die, you've wasted the only life you get. Think of all the things that could have happened with that life. And you missed out on them. Because you put your hope in, in this, this untrue eternity that wasn't waiting for you, right? That's important. Christianity doesn't work as a personal philosophy. It works in that Christian ethics are awesome and make people treat each other better, right? But in terms of you as an individual person... If this thing isn't real, if, if this isn't true, and if Christ isn't who he says he is, and if he didn't do what he claimed to do, then we are wasting our time. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But praise be to God, Jesus did in fact raise from the dead. Right? That this is the truth of the story. Paul tells us in our text that he rose as the first fruits. This is this reference to an ancient Israelite idea of a first fruits offering. You can read about it in Leviticus 23 or Deuteronomy 26. Essentially, it goes like this. The ancient Israelites would take the first portion of any given harvest and bring it to the Lord as a burnt offering. This was a way for the Israelites. It has kind of a twofold purpose. It was a way for the Israelites to remember the past of God's provision for them in his salvation from Egypt in the Exodus, as well as his provision of food for them in the wilderness 
how God took care of them, how he saved their people. But beyond the past, beyond the first fruits sacrifice as an act of remembrance, the Israelites would give the first fruit offering as an offering of trust that God would in fact provide the rest of the harvest, right? They saw it as a way to look forward to God's good future blessing for his people. So according to Paul, Jesus himself is a kind of first fruits offering. His resurrection was not simply a wild yet singular historical event. Rather, it was the pattern by which God intends to treat his people. Jesus is the first fruits. That means we, according to Paul, are the promised future harvest that we can trust God to provide. As you go on, verse kind of 21 to 23, the kind of that section, there's this amazing reference to Adam and the curse, how, how sin has affected us all, but Jesus' sacrifice, his work is sufficient. It's able to restore each and every one of us. Each and every one of us who is in Christ, we are the future harvest, beloved. Jesus didn't just rise from the grave, right? The resurrection isn't the whole story. He ascended into heaven and there he's now ruling at the right hand of the Father. And he has promised he will return to judge and restore all things. And when Jesus comes back to judge and restore all things, it will be the best and worst day of all of reality. It's an intense sentence. But it's a thought we need to think through here. For those who have rejected Christ, the idea of his coming judgment is the most horrific thought possible. And the scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. God is holy. And our sin is unholy. The holiness of God and sinfulness of man cannot coexist. Period. When the holy and righteous God comes in his complete and full glory and power, that that is sin will cease. It cannot stand in the presence of that holy and righteous God. That's terrifying. It's terrifying for those who aren't in Christ. But praise be to God, the judgment is not the whole thing. For those who are in Christ, it is a restoration, a redemption. And by the way, that's not some large brick wall God has built and said, these ones get in and forget those guys. No, 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 no. Being in Christ, and it is, it's God's desire for all of his creation. That redemption, that rest- restoration. We talked about this last week. Why is God slow in fulfilling his promises? He's not slow as some of us count slowness. No, he is patient, not wanting any to perish, wanting all to come to repentance and faith. That in Christness, that that. That not just avoiding of judgment, but reception of eternal amazing blessing, that is God's desire for his creation. It is why he tarries. That the wedding feast might be full, that more tables, more seats might be filled with souls that have received the beautiful redemption and forgiveness of Jesus. Who's coming. And there will be a judgment. And it'll be the worst day in reality for those who've rejected Christ. But for those of us who are in Christ, those who have fallen at the feet of Jesus, seeking his grace, seeking his forgiveness, this will be the single most wonderful day in existence. Those in Christ will be raised up like Jesus, alive again, but without the effects of sin. No sickness, no suffering, no pain. Only the good that your God made you for. It's what the resurrection 
of those in Christ will be like. It'll be like this life, but so different that it's hard to compare. You'll have breath in your lungs. You'll have a beat in your heart, but it will be perfect. No sin, no curse, nothing evil, nothing wrong. Just what God made you for. Just perfection. Verse 24 to 28, kind of the way the text ends out, it kind of walks us through where it goes after that. Once he establishes this ongoing reality, Paul moves on to what heaven will be like, which is forever. The happily ever after of Christianity. The text says that Jesus will systematically destroy everything evil in all of reality. Oof, that's a heavy sentence. The point of this image is not to highlight the judgment piece, Because we know the heart of God is that all would come to him. That that the way to Christ is open to all who want it. The point of the image is to highlight the existence of the authority and rule of Christ over reality. This is heaven in a nutshell. Christ's rule and authority over reality in perfection with nothing wrong, no sin, no rebellion, no hurt, no bad. That's that's what's being highlighted here when it talks about Jesus systematically removing all other authorities, everything evil. The last enemy to die will be death itself. Jesus will conquer the very concept of decay and death. Come on. That's the eternity we're moving towards. Because this is the promise of Christianity. That eternal rule. Christ returned. Everything restored, no more sin, no more evil, no more suffering, no more shame, no more hurt, nothing bad, just perfection forever. This is what we're looking forward to. And yet many of us just give this no thought, this ultimate promise of Christianity. You know, oftentimes Christianity by those outside the faith will be critiqued as being too focused on the promise of the afterlife. Sometimes you'll read these kind of cheeky atheist critiques of Christian life and Christians. And we'll talk about how we're not concerned about the realities in front of us because all we care about is the afterlife we're heading toward. And listen, there's, there's no excuse and no room for a Christianity that ignores the reality of injustice and suffering here and now. But we also have to acknowledge something. There's truth in that critique. There is. Because heaven is what we're all about. It is the whole thing. It's the promise of Christianity. And many of us just aren't excited about it. There's this, this guy who used to be a Christian comedy writer. He does like self-help stuff now. But this guy named Johnny Cuff used to run this Christian comedy and satire blog. And he wrote this piece about Christians who can't wait for Christ to return as long as he waits till after their honeymoon. <laughs> Which is funny. But also, also something where you go, mm, yeah, I get why people would think that, Right? I'll be honest, guys, that's a terrible understanding of the gospel, right? And yet that's such a real, such a real picture of how poorly we understand and and even consider heaven. The idea that the pleasure experienced on a honeymoon is worth delaying in heaven, right? It just shows a very small picture of the gospel. By the way, a very inaccurate picture of the gospel. Heaven is what we're all about. So what is the holdup? 
What is it that, that actually keeps us Christians from living daily excited and anticipating the promise? I want to land us today with just kind of three ideas that I think make it hard or make it more, just, just less natural for us to be eagerly anticipating the heaven that is to come. And hopefully this will kind of help us think through what we can do to engage in a gospel-centered way, kind of combat that mindset. The first one is this. It's just the reality of sin here and now. Now think about this. In heaven, Jesus will abolish death, right? The very concept of decay, of death, will submit to the authority of Jesus. It's hard to even imagine what that kind of existence would look like. And here's the reason. We have no context for understanding real, pure, kingdom of God living, eternal heaven living. We don't know what that would even look like. We have no context for it. Because all we know is the world with sin. All we know is life with the looming reality of death and suffering. I think this is why we talked about this last week. I think this is part of why the kingdom is talked about in analogies. Because we just don't fully understand it till we experience it. But beloved, this is also why we live in eager anticipation of the coming future. Let me, let me reread just a little snippet of last week's text from Romans 8. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, I've heard that somewhere, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption. That is the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, a reality that we can't comprehend of because we live so drenched in the reality of sin now, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Beloved, heaven is our hope. It's the promise God has made for us. Jesus didn't accomplish his work so that we could live in this weird halfway We've received forgiveness of our sin, but there's still suffering and injustice and evil all around. This is not the end goal of the work of Jesus. As though Jesus' work was sufficient to save your soul, but not save our bodies. No, Jesus' work was sufficient to save and redeem and restore all things. Right now, we're just waiting. Waiting for the thing to actually come together completely. The kingdom is already, but it's not yet. Christ will return and restore all things. And heaven, oh man, will just be more than we can possibly imagine. Everything you were made for, everything your heart and soul longs for. You know those feelings? Those feelings you get when you experience something that's just evil? Someone dies young, someone gets a terrible diagnosis, a friend betrays, just these sort of things where you, just your heart goes, that is not, that should not happen. That should not be. Beloved, that is true. That should not happen, and it should not be. Your your soul wasn't designed to live in a world where sin exists, where there's evil and injustice and betrayal and suffering. And eventually your soul will exist in a world where that doesn't exist. That is the promise of Christ, to restore all things to bring you back to that perfect Genesis 2 communion with God and the Creator. Where you live in relationship, perfect relationship with your God, with your fellow man, forever. It's hard to imagine. We don't have language for it because we're steeped 
in this world of sin and injustice. But I think oftentimes, we're just more interested in what our faith means for our life right now. These last two pieces, I think, are some of the, they're kind of similar, but it's kind of a nuanced difference that I think is important for many of us as just Western American Christians. I think these are are pretty intense temptations that lie in our experience of faith as modern Western Christians. I think many of us are just more interested in what our faith does for our life here and now than we are in what our faith does for our forever. We've already kind of talked about this, but it's so important. It's so easy to fall into this trap of seeing our faith as a method to make our life here and now easier and better. Now listen, it's easy to critique those kind of prosperity gospel preachers, right? Who will try and convince us to use Jesus and the Bible as a means to get money and get rich and get stuff. Like, it's easy to kind of laugh that off and be like, oh yeah, sure, God wants me to have a private jet. Get out of here. Like, it's easy to critique that idea. But beloved, we would be lying if we did not confess that we often do the exact same thing with the intangibles of this life. Follow Jesus. Read your Bible, use your faith, and you will be more happy. You can have a good marriage. You'll find true contentment and joy in this life. You'll find fulfillment here and now because you chose Jesus. Beloved, that is very easily just as much a prosperity gospel as telling you Jesus will get your wallet to be thicker. Very easily we can fall into that trick of turning our eyes away from the promise of God, away from the eternity he has fought for and bought for for us and looking to the here and the now as though temporarily fixing our problems in our 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years is what Jesus died on the cross for. And beloved, don't mishear me. Life in Christ is a wonderful life. It's, it's, it's worth living a life following Christ. But the point of the cross was not to make your life here and now easier. Jesus didn't die to give you a happy long marriage. And he didn't die to make you more joyfully content with whatever your salary currently is. He sacrificed himself to buy your soul back from your own sinful rebellion. To kill your sin and take on the punishment for it so that you can be made perfect and like him. His sacrifice was to buy you back Gave his life as a ransom for many. So that your own rebellion would not doom you eternally. That's a big deal, guys. I've already read this verse, but I'm going to read it again because I think this is important for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, right before our text starts. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied. Yes, yes. The Christian life affects your life here and now. We learn to walk in contentment in the midst of suffering and things like that. There's all sorts of beautiful ways the Spirit changes the way we live this world. But if you are trying to make your faith into a transaction, I will trade you my Bible reading and my church attendance and my tithe for happiness and joy. And you are missing the gospel. You're missing it. Jesus has more for you than just here and now. And this last one, I think, is probably most insidious for us. For many of us, our life is just so good, we just don't really need heaven. Our life is just good enough. 
Many of us don't think about heaven because we don't have to think about heaven. Our life here is pretty good. We like how stuff is. I mean, gosh, of course the early Christians were all hyped up on heaven. Their lives were terrible. They were peasants and slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. They got tortured to death. Of course they were hyped on heaven. My life, I don't know about you guys, but I've got air conditioning and cable and I can call a pizza place and they bring a pizza to my house. I don't even have to leave. I don't have to put pants on. The pizza can just be left on my front porch. My life is pretty easy. It's pretty good. Many of us don't have enough reasons to think about heaven until we get sick or we get old or death seems close. And then all of a sudden we go, oh shoot, I should think about that piece. But beloved, 1 Corinthians 15, and really the whole of the scripture, but 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't leave us that option. Heaven is the promise. As the chapter continues, I want to read you this text. This is kind of how chapter 15 ends out, starting in verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will all be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. Then, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Beloved, the entire direction of the gospel, of the Bible, and of your life on this earth is the eternal kingdom of God in heaven. The end result of your faith journey is forever perfect with God. This is where we're headed. Beloved, this is the promise. This is the promise. This is why why the early church endured the suffering. Think about a guy like Paul who looks at his, his fame and his wealth and his academic career and just says, nah, I'd rather live the rest of my life homeless and getting arrested and beat up a lot. Who would choose that life? Someone who sees eternity as more valuable than 30, 40, 50 years of a career and some comfort and some wealth. Beloved, that's the promise. Whatever your life looks like now, whatever your faith in Christ looks like now, beloved, God is moving you toward heaven. It's the promise he has for you. It's the work he's called you to. It's the thing he's desperately seeking his creation to come to him and experience. Why he delays, why he tarries. The more might enter into the kingdom. The more might come to the wedding feast of the Lamb and fill every seat and fill every table. It's the whole thing we're aiming toward. Adam, if you want to, you and Chuck want to come up here and 
They're, they're, they're going to sing a song of response over us in just a second. But I want to end by doing this. I want to end by reading us this text from Revelation. The Apostle John was the apostle who lived the longest here on this earth. Or that is to say, he survived the longest after Jesus raised from the dead. Near the end of his life, he was given a vision. And God showed him what heaven would look like. And in the book of Revelation, he recorded just these wild images and visions of Christ's return and the restoration of all things and what heaven would look like. In Revelation 21, we get this amazing, just little peak, little window into what God is moving us toward. It says this, Then I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will now live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain, they will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. To write these words down, they're faithful and true. And he looked at me and he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Beloved, this is what God has done for those who are his. Perfection. Sorrow, suffering, injustice, evil, all gone. This is the perfect forever, the good that God has for you. We should eagerly await this truth. It should enter into our hearts and our minds daily. Think of a little kid the last week before Christmas when he's supposed to be concentrating on midterms, but really he's just thinking about action figures and G.I. Joes and Barbies and stockings and presents and whatever the toy that kid's excited about. Whatever's going on in that day, what's in the back of that kid's head Christmas morning? That's the eager anticipation we're talking about that actually fuels and changes the way you live your life here and now. Beloved, this life, and what a gift this life is. This life is not even a speck in the face of the eternity, the eternal good that God has for you. That should be in your heart. It should be in your mind, beloved. Heaven is the goal. It's the hope. It's where this story is headed. It's your hope and my hope. And by the way, it can be the hope of every single person you know. Let's take a few minutes. They're going to sing this song over you and then we'll end our time with communion and benediction.